Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. I'm Kristen. I'm an alcoholic. And thanks, Lori, for inviting me to speak tonight. Happy birthday to everyone that took cakes. And Blythe, it's good to see you. I wasn't sure what happened to you over the holidays, wherever you are. Um, And welcome to the newcomers, too, those that introduced themselves and those that didn't. I um, am grateful to be here tonight. And even though my ego did everything it could to try to keep me from getting up here... Um, speaking is one of my least favorite commitments, something that I do not like to do, and it's so ironic because when I got sober at 18, my sobriety date is August 31st, 1992, I, um, one day at a time, (laughs) don't be impressed by that number, it just happens 24-hour periods, anyways, um, I would go to young people's conventions, and I'd hear speakers, and I'd think, oh, that's what I'm going to do. My story's way better than theirs, and I thought I would be a circuit speaker, and then when push comes to shove, the more sober I got, the less I wanted to speak at meetings, so Um, the only reason why I'm here is because I love Alcoholics Anonymous with all of my heart. Be prepared. I'm going to cry, too. I have tissue in my pocket. No matter what, I will cry. Um... Because I'm so grateful for what you guys have given me. Everything that I have in my life is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I came here a hopeless alcoholic, and I thought I was doomed to that death. And um, today I have a freedom and a peace that I never thought were possible for me. So if it means that I have to get up here and cry in front of a bunch of people... I do it. And if it means that I have to go to meetings that I don't want to fucking go to regularly, I do it. (laughs) And if it means that I have to reach my hand out and show up and meet with my sponsees regularly when I don't want to do it, I do it. So anyways, um, what it was like for me. I um, was married. (laughs) I was born. One of those gifts of AA. But I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, and um, to two parents. My mother stayed home with me, and my father worked, and he had alcoholism, but he got religion. He moved out there, left California because he was in big trouble with the law, and he got religion because his grandmother was a Jehovah Witness. And he told my mom, oh, I found this new way, come join me. So she did, and they became, you know, people that were going to save the world in the 60s, and my dad stayed dry for 10 years. And he eventually picked up a drink again after I was born, and my little sister was a surprise two years later. And within two months' period of time, he left my mother, and he chose, thank you, he chose alcohol and basically told her that that life that she dreamed of and imagined that they had planned for each other was no longer going to happen, and um, he was done. So luckily I have grandparents that lived out here, and they came and rescued her and drug us back out to California. And 
I went from having this like little quiet country life to having no mom around, no dad around, and I just felt really alone immediately at four years old. And um, my mom had to get a job to take care of us because my grandma was a real controller. She had a dad that died of alcoholism during Prohibition, and she didn't have alcoholism in that way. She was allergic to alcohol in the opposite way, where if she drank... She couldn't handle it. Like, one drink would make her crazy. But she had all the ism. And so she raised my mother that way, and she was going to make her pay for her bad decisions. So it was like, you could stay here for six months, and then you need to figure it out. And that grandmother was someone I was compared with my whole life. And her and my father, the drunk that left us, you know. And um, so... I was left, my mother found an apartment for us because she was still connected to that religion, the Jehovah Witnesses, and luckily they kind of helped her and came together and, you know, supported her. So we found low-income housing, and she got a job, and she pulled it together and took care of these two little girls. But I was just breathing for air. We were surviving. That was the point that we just started to survive, you know, and... She was at work all day long. She left, I remember it wasn't even light outside yet, and would get home really late at night when it was dark. And she didn't have a lot of money, so the people that took care of me were the kind of people that would take care of someone for a low amount of money. And so I was raised around a lot of babysitters with abuse and drug addiction and alcoholism. And I remember being five years old and going to kindergarten, and my babysitter lived about a mile away from where I went to school, and I walked there by myself, and I walked home by myself, which seemed normal to me at the time. It didn't seem, you know weird or strange but as I've now had children I realize how crazy that was and you know I'm grateful too that there are after school programs now because those are the kind of programs that could have saved a little girl like me from a lot of the stuff that I had to go through because my sister actually they started in the 80s and she was able to get into a school and go to that program and she'd had a different life experience than I had because of it So anyways, the reason why I'm going back this far is because a lot of my alcoholism started to show up in my life way before I picked up a drink. And um, because that fear, that loneliness just ruled my life. This morning at our women's meeting, the topic was loneliness. And it was touching a lot of buttons. And um, because here I was, this little girl, no one to take care of me really, except for these like crazy people. And my mom just cried all the time, and we'd stop at the liquor store on the way home, and she'd drink boxed wine and her gin and drink herself to sleep, which I never knew my mom had a drinking problem until I got sober. Because I thought an alcoholic was like my father, a raging person that abandoned people, that got in fights, that lived crazily, you know. I didn't know that if you drank every single night until you passed out, that that also was an alcohol problem. And... um Anyway, I've learned a lot here in Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) Because like I say, when you grow up in the family that I grew up in and in the neighborhood that I grew up in, that stuff just seems normal until it doesn't seem normal anymore, until you start to see that other people live a different way and then you compare yourself to those people and you start to realize that your story is a lot different. And for a long time I thought that that made me less than, but what I've learned here is that that's just my story and that I didn't have a choice to live that way. That was just the life that I was born into. And um, 
and the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't have to continue that cycle. And I've been able to raise my boys in sobriety, and I have amazing children that are 20 years old and 16 years old, and I'm close to them, and one's up at college, and he's a great kid, although he doesn't have classes on Friday this quarter. And I know being on Dean's list doesn't make you immune to alcoholism. I've seen that around here. But for me personally, I was a go-hard-and-fast alcoholic. And um, so anyways, all that apartness, all that separateness, all that loneliness, and being a Jehovah Witness didn't help any because I was, again, separated during every holiday party and every, you know, event that would happen at our school. I'd have to go to the library and be by myself. And I went to a school that was predominantly Mexican, and I was a little white blonde girl, and so that made me feel alone and different. And none of these things are what make me an alcoholic, but these are a lot of things that made me, when I picked up that first drink, go, (sighs) I found my solution, you know? Alcohol was my solution. And um, and I remember having drinks before that moment when because my dad would pop in and out. He'd move back to California feeling guilty. We wouldn't know where he was for years, and then he'd call drunk, and somehow it'd be all our fault by the end of the conversation, even though we were little girls. And it would bring all this insanity back into my life. And um, one of the times when he popped in, he played rugby, and so I remember, you know, they do a lot of drinking, these rugby guys, and I remember there was this van, and they had kegs in the back, and me and my sister were, like, pouring the beers for all of these guys. I was probably, like, 10, and my sister was 8, so that was when I had my first drinks, is just drinking out of those as I hand them to the guys, but it didn't do that same thing for me at that time. At that time, it was just, you know, fun, I guess. But that time when I was 15 years old and I took that drink at a party and had, cause I was scared. I was so scared of alcohol because all I heard all my life was, you're a potential alcoholic. You're so much like your dad. And so I was like, I'm never drinking. I'm not going to end up like that, you know? And I heard all these stories about how when they lived in Mission Beach and he would do acid and poles would melt. And I'm like, I'm never doing those drugs. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> and, um, You know, I did do those drugs. (laughs) And the sad thing is about alcoholism, and this is why I know that I'm an alcoholic, even though I got sober at 18, is that when I take in alcohol into my body, other people, normal people, they can do that and be heavy drinkers like you were talking about, but they can decide to stop drinking. But what happened to me is I couldn't decide to stop drinking anymore. Like, I needed to drink, and... That's the difference that makes me an alcoholic. And I saw it from that first night. Because I got that aha, like warm, fuzzy, delicious feeling, I wanted more immediately. So all that fear that I had had for those years that kept me away, because in my neighborhood I hung around with a lot of people that already drank and did drugs and were having sex and did all of this stuff. But because of my fear of ending up like my dad, I stayed away from it. I just hung around. I liked the energy of all of that still, you know? And... um See, I knew this was going to happen. I forget what the heck I was talking about. But um, having that first drink and having that feeling and wanting more immediately. And so that's what happened is I was in high school and I decided this is what I want to do. Like, this is 
what I want to spend my time doing. And that is what I did. I started going to Mexico because I lived in the South Bay. And so I would go down to TJ regularly. I remember the first time that I went with these girls that were way more normal than me and from a different neighborhood than me because my mom bust me into a high school because a lot of stuff happened at the one high school that I was going to close to my neighborhood and um, she wanted like a fresh start she thought that would make things better and um, unfortunately the girl that I was best friends with at that other school had gotten kicked out of our school and went to that school right before me so all of my baggage went over to that school with me but anyways um they were going down to Mexico, and I was like, oh, can I get a ride? Like, that sounds so fun, because they would talk about how they were drinking and dancing. And so I went down there with them, and I remember asking the guy, like, what's your strongest drink that you have? Because I didn't know what to order. You know, I'm 15, I'm in a bar, and I know how to get beers and do shots, but they said that it was a Long Island iced tea. I'm like, yes, get me one of those. <laughs> And that became my drink. Like, I love drinking Long Island STs. And, um, except for, you know, really I would drink whatever people would buy for me because I didn't have a job most of the time. And um, so TJ became a regular part of my life. And even though I wasn't getting bad grades in school, I somehow survived. I don't ever remember school being like a priority for me because I was just barely showing up because my mom was having to rush to work and I'd just get dropped off. And what I was sharing about my alcoholism starting way before I picked up a drink, in elementary school I was suspended two times from elementary school. I was in the principal's office constantly because I had all these behavioral issues because for me what happened way before I picked up a drink, is anger became a drug of choice. And so all of that, like, aloneness and all of these feelings, especially growing up where I grew up and having to take the bus or who knows, I never knew how I was getting places, but oftentimes it was that way. And there were gangs in my neighborhood, you know? So I started to learn how to, like, talk a lot of shit and be a badass and act like, I don't care, go ahead, try, you know? And so that anger... And also, you know, my mom, I had all these feelings, and my mom was this basket case who was always crying, and the world, she was drowning in her sorrow of being abandoned by this man and having to take care of these little girls with all these behavioral problems, and... And um, then I had this dad that was just missing, and I just didn't have anyone to take care of me. Like, a little girl deserves to be taken care of. So what I started to do is just hate the world, you know, because it was like, fuck you, fuck this, why me, you know? And it seems crazy. I mean, now, like, when I watched my little kids grow up at the ages that I was, like, cussing out adults, and I was one of those kids that my kids would be like, oh, my God, this kid, like, did something. And I was like... Like, oh, well, and here's the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. Even though I was the mom that was running the PTA and doing a million things because you guys taught me how to suit up and show up and be of service, I would tell them, you don't know what's going on in their homeboys, you know? You don't know what that little kid had to do to get to school. You guys had everything you needed. You had that love and support, but some kids are just trying to figure out how to breathe, you know? And um, I was that kind of kid, so I was doing okay in school, even with all of that stuff going on, because I learned that I'm pretty smart here, you know. And um, But I decided to drop out of high school. I did have my timer going, and then I touched it, and 
because uh, I don't want to stay in what it was like for too long, because <laughs> we all know what it was like, but um, even though our stories are different. So anyways, I um, told my mom I had a really good idea, and I know it was going to fix everything. She was always looking for what was going to fix me and what was going to solve her problem, it, but never a healthy thing like therapy or like a real solution, but it was clothes or, you know, a boyfriend living with us when I was 16 and 17 and 18, and she liked to help every little broken bird, you know, it made her feel better, and um, and I knew how to find broken birds, too, because <laughs> I was one myself. So anyways, I told her, I know what I need to do. I know things are crazy. I just need to quit school. You need to sign these papers, and I need to go to continuation school because I wanted more time to get to TJ, to be able to drink more, to be able to party more. I just wanted that to be my whole life because it was the only time that I felt okay. It was the only time that I felt comfortable in my own skin, and I had that ease and comfort that came with the first drink. And, um, you know, I wasn't a legal age to drink, so I couldn't just go to the liquor store and buy liquor here in the States. But down there, I was a pretty young girl with big boobs, and I could drink whenever I wanted to, you know? (laughs) And, um... Anyways, so that became a lot of my story. I drank in bars in Mexico, and at first it was like catching rides with people. Then I got my license, and then I'd be driving people down there. And then I'd be driving myself down there alone and um, getting so drunk. And a lot of my friends had normal parents that, like, disciplined them, and they'd have to sneak out to be able to go to TJ, and so they wouldn't be able to stay all night long. And so they'd be like, come on, Kristen, we're heading back. And I'd be like, oh, no, no, no worries, you know. I'll get a ride with these people. And it would be guys that I didn't know. And just insanity, right? Like, already that alcoholic insanity, and I was young. I wasn't even an adult yet. And so it went on like that. And then I met a girl that was became my like true partner in crime. And she had already dropped out of school a couple years before. And she lived life in the fast lane. And I just loved her so much. I was like, oh, yeah. And she had a harder life like me, too, right? So she had free time to do everything that I wanted to do. And she had connections to do stuff that I was like already not doing yet. And... Um, <laughs> And so it went on like that. But what started to happen super quickly for me is that magical, wonderful effect that alcohol produced for me was not producing that same effect for me anymore. Like I've heard a speaker say before that it starts off with fun, then fun with problems, and then problems. And that progression, unlike what Kate was sharing where she was able to control and manage I was already unmanageable, quick, right off the bat. It was like a 100% job, this partying stuff and staying numb. And I was trying to just chase it, chase it, chase it. And um, the fun with problems came quickly. And I, um, I started to want to die more than I ever had before. What had also happened is that grandmother that I was compared to and that understood me, she ended up committing suicide when I was in the sixth grade. And so that was like my one person that I felt like understood me. And so that was one of those other moments that it was just like, screw this. And the God stuff, I thought, if there's this God that's all loving and all omnipresent, I'm like, 
screw him because what has he done for me, given me all of this horrible stuff? And um, so I hated God. I knew that there had to be something because I loved nature and I would always feel connected to that. And just like it talks about in our big book, right? Like, who doesn't see this beautiful sunset or the sea and not believe that there's something greater than myself? But I thought, I don't want anything to do with that higher power because it does not care about me, you know? And I really had that attitude of, if you had my life, then you'd be doing what I'm doing too. Like, F off, leave me alone, I'm fine, I don't need you. And because I learned that when I needed people, when I loved people, they always hurt me and let me down. So I started to build up all these huge walls around me where I didn't care and I didn't need you and I don't love you anyways. And um, with boys, boys were a big part of my story. And um, they did the same things for me that alcohol did for a while until it also stopped working for me quickly. And um, when I got here, that was actually one of the only suggestions that I knew I had to follow. I heard people saying, stay out of a relationship for a year. And I'm like, oh, that's one that I think I need to do because I got here young enough that I picked and choose what I thought like, oh, okay, yeah, first step, admit it, I'm powerless. And my life's not that unmanageable. I really thought I was a high bottom when I got here. <laughs> I tell my story or I listen to Kate's story and I'm like, oh, that's what a high bottom is. Like, you're able to pull it off for a little while. I don't think when you get here under 21, you were a high bottom. <laughs> so anyways, um, The alcohol wasn't doing for me what it had done for me before, and the problems were getting more and more immense, and the depression was getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and what happened is I ended up, my grandfather, who was the husband of that woman that had committed suicide, he was like my angel. He was a father figure to me, and especially after she died, he really showed up for me. He was the one that helped me to buy a car, and he would you know, drop me off at the beach because I loved going to the beach with my friends. And He was just someone that I knew I could count on. And um, He was a retired chief in the Navy, and I was trying to quit by this time all the time on my own. Like, I'm not going to drink tonight. Nobody let me do this tonight. Nobody let me do that tonight. And I would always end up drunk. And I was doing everything that it talked about and more about alcoholism tonight. You know, switching from this to that and only drinking hard liquor, only drinking beer, not drinking in the morning. I That continuation school... I had gotten kicked out of, and then I got kicked out of another continuation school, and so I'm like, oh, I could do home studies. I only had to show up once a week with a packet. I could not show up once a week with a packet. And it's really not that funny. I mean, it's funny, but it's really sad. And then I started to get all these feelings of, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to go to prom. <laughs> I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life because I feel like it's in every, like, movie and everything. So I'm like, I've got to, like, figure it out how to do this. So luckily my uncle was, my mom's brother was a teacher at this one continuation school in the South Bay. And he pulled strings to get me back into that school. And because, like I say, I'm smart, I made up all those units quickly in less than a semester and got back to my school and graduated with my class barely with a D minus in English because I never showed up. That was my first period class and I was getting high in the parking lot every day before school and um, showing up towards the end. But that codependent mother of mine went and fought the teacher and the principal for me to be able to pass. I deserved an F in that class. I should not have graduated. But um, 
Al-Anons are nice to have around sometimes. <laughs> and I am grateful for her 100% unconditional love because that lady did a lot of things wrong because she didn't have the tools to give me a lot of what I needed. But she loved me 100% and I am... Um, and I know that today. And I also know that that father loved me 100%. And um, I have a relationship with him today, too, that is all because of this program. Because I hated that man with every fiber of my being. And um, a lot of why I was trying to quit, first of all, because it wasn't really doing for me what it did before. But also because I was ending up exactly like that guy. And I was hurting everyone that I loved and because of that rage and that anger. I mean, my mom slept with her. I was telling Joy this tonight. My mom slept with her door locked a lot of the time because she was so afraid of me because I was just such a raging crazy. I had so much anger and so much pain, and I just would lash it on the people that I loved the most. And a lot of other people, too. I mean, I was the kind of girl that if you just looked at me when I was walking by you somewhere, I'd be like, what the fuck are you looking at, bitch? You know, like, I just wanted to fight. I just wanted to, like, get that anger out. And, and, I, and I fought a lot. So I was kicked out of school a lot for fighting or, you know, a couple days here and there. Um, whew, it's so crazy, the way that I live today compared to the way that I lived then. And... Um, so anyways, I went to my grandfather's house and because I was on day three. Day three was always the day that I just couldn't take it anymore. I don't know. It was too many feelings. It was detox. It was all of that stuff. And I would end up drinking or smoking again that day because I smoked marijuana too every single day. It's so funny because when I was first getting sober, <laughs> to say that word marijuana because I would just you know, smoked weed or did bongs back then. We didn't have all this fancy weed stuff. But anyways, day three was the day that I just couldn't take it anymore, and I would end up giving in. And it was day three, and I got in a huge raging fight with my mom and my sister because I terrorized them and um, slammed the door and left. And a lot of times I wouldn't come back for days, my poor mother. And um, instead of doing what I normally did, I went to my grandpa's house. And I didn't cry. So I know that that's why I cry a lot now. Because all, I remember my sponsor told me one time, you're so sensitive. You're such a sensitive alcoholic. And I was like, you don't, I'm not sensitive. Like, what do you, that's my mom, the crier, the poor me. You know, I did not want to end up like her either. And so I stuffed every feeling that I had, stuffed, 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 and alcohol helped me to do That's what I mean when I'm saying it's not working. That's one of the things that stopped working to do, right, is those feelings were just getting, like, up to here, and the punching didn't help anymore, and the raging didn't help, and everything just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So I show up at my grandpa's house. And he lets me in, and it's late. It's, like, weird that I'm showing up there like that. And I just start bawling, 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 bawling. And um, he's just like, what's going, you know, what do I do with this, this big military man? And he takes me back. Like, I had a room at his house. All the grandkids would stay in that room. And I'm just back there, and I'm just crying, like, out of control crying, and he brought a chair, and I remember, and he sat right next to me, and I wanted to die. I just wanted to die so bad that night, because I felt that alcoholic hopelessness of everything in me wanted to drink, and everything in me didn't want to drink. 
So it was like, I can only die. There's no other solution. And he was sitting there next to me. Because it had been like hours now that I was sitting there feeling that way. And um, and I just started to tell him, Zadie, I've been drinking and da 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 da. And I said, it's over third day and I don't even know what to do. And I didn't really know about AA. I just saw after school programs and thought it was a joke. That was something we would do bongs and laugh at. And <laughs> like, oh, this is so unrealistic. And, um, and I just told him, I need help. I need help. And so I guess he had called my mom that night to tell her that I was there and I was safe. Um, they found a therapist for me. And already the next mind, this is the alcoholic mind. Already the next day when I was feeling a little better, it was like, I think I'm okay. I don't think alcohol is my problem. <laughs> oh. It's insane. We have a disease that keeps telling us we don't have the disease. It's so insane to me. And um, see, this is exactly what I didn't want to happen, is for this to be so much of my story, because I have such an amazing 26 years of sobriety. (laughs) So anyways, he um, got me help. I went to the therapist. I started telling her everything that had happened to me in my life, and that's why I drank. And then she said, well, it sounds like you drink a lot. Like, how much are you drinking? And I told her, and she said, well, there's a meeting here. Was that like a recovery place, a rehab? She said, well, there's a meeting here every night at 7 o'clock, and I think that you should go check it out. Tomorrow night's a young people's meeting. And I think it... It was a different type of meeting every night. There was like C-A-N-A-A-A, this one young people's meeting. So I went, and I remember they went around and introduced themselves. And when I said, I'm Kristen, I'm an elk, like it was so hard to say those words. And um, I said them anyways, and I just started to relate to people. And I felt like, oh, these people understand me, because I always thought I was a bad person. I thought this poor lady, she's the victim of me and all of this abuse and I was just I th- that's why I was in the principal's office I was just such a bad person you know just like my bad alcoholic father and um, so I started to go to a meeting there every single night at 7 o'clock and I didn't know NAAC I didn't know the difference of all this shit back then and um, and actually the AA meeting the people were the meanest to me at they would tell me things like we drank more than or we spilled more than you drank and they didn't make me feel like I belong and I would share about the weed and they would act like oh we don't talk about that here you need to go to NA then I'd go to NA and they'd be like I'm a hope to die dope fiend and I'm like um I'm definitely not that (laughs) but they're very accepting in that program too Much easier to qualify. Um, so anyways, I continued to go to meetings every night at 7 o'clock. And I didn't know what to do for all those hours till I got to that mixed meeting. Because people would say, just don't drink until tomorrow night. You know, don't drink and get to meetings. Don't drink between meetings. And I'd be like, how do I do that, you know? And they would give me phone. Actually, there weren't a lot of phone lists back then because it was pre-computers. So you had to ask people for their phone numbers. But people would hand me their phone number a lot. And that stuff all seemed really weird to me, too. Because I was always, because of my, like, background, I was always looking for the angle. Like, what do you guys want? What are you trying to get out of me? I knew there was some religious thing because of the God. And 
I just kept coming back anyways because I was so desperate to not drink. And it was working. I would, like, come super dolled up to the meeting because I would have all day to get ready, you know. (laughs) And um, anyways, what ended up happening for me is I thought that I was different because I was young. And so I was really struggled finding my place in this program. And I, I really earned my seat because I knew that I had a problem with alcohol. I mean, that's why I ended up here. I was asking for help myself. Nobody stuck me in a rehab. No one was trying to get me sober. I wanted to be sober. And um, I relapsed after 59 days, and I couldn't get sober again. And that was really when I realized that I'm never, I'm just like this alcoholic who's lost his legs. I'm never going to grow new ones. Like, I conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. And luckily, at a camp out, I met this girl, and she was a little, by this time, I was, like, into hippier stuff and reggae. And I feel like reggae music actually helped me with the higher power stuff a lot because I, it was, like, love and peace and Jara Safari and... <laughs> And it was also kind of what helped me hit my bottom, because I wanted to be that, but then I'd be like, what the fuck are you looking at, bitch, right? Like, boom, you know? And I couldn't, there's a line in the big book that just is so me. I had all these moral and philosophical convictions galore, but I could not live up to them no matter how much I would have liked to. And so anyways... That girl and I went across country because the Grateful Dead were playing in Atlanta and ICIPAW was happening, which is the International Conference of Young People in AA. And I hadn't really found young people at that time that were staying sober in 92. There was a few here and there, but most of the kids that were sober were forced to be sober by their parents and they were all lying and doing a bunch of other stuff. Except for this one skinhead guy, which was so rad because it was me, the little hippie girl, and then the skinhead guy. But we were soul brother and sister. Like, I knew him and he knew me, you know? And um, we helped each other a lot to stay sober. That girl and I ended up crossing country and um, going to this young people's convention. And that was where the real magic of AA hit me. Because I saw young people that weren't doing all this crazy stuff sober. That Because that was... The thing, right, at the Spring Roundup, I went around some of the young people, and they were still doing everything that I did drunk but sober. And I was like, I can't stay sober and do all of that stuff, you know? Like I said, the boy stuff and staying up all night tweaking out on coffee and whatnot. And um, so I went to that convention, and there were young people that were sober with a lot of years and had worked all the steps. And I was working the steps with a sponsor, but I was, like, showing up at her house. I'm not sure how to do the My Part column. And really, I hadn't done any work for the My Part column. And we continued on that dead tour with other sober people. And... Basically, I knew that we had tickets to go on the summer tour, like a good alcoholic, right? It's like, oh, this is good, this is fun, let's keep going with it. But I had already been trying hard enough in AA, and I knew that I needed to 100% give myself to this program if I was going to stay sober and I was going to really change. And so there was a lady that I was already thinking of back in San Diego, and she was hardcore. She was from New York. She had gotten sober in her 20s. She wore all black when she got sober, but then now she was, like, pretty cool and, like, a little more peaceful and always would welcome newcomers. 
And so what I told this girl, hey, I can't go on the rest of this tour with you. And I don't, we got to sell the tickets, whatever we got to do. I got to get back to San Diego. I want to be sober, you know, and I was already going to college. That's part of what got me sober too, is that I couldn't show up to college. I had signed up for a dance class, an English class and um, jewelry making, and I was done within, like, three weeks. I just couldn't show up. I, when I was not sober, I could not show up to things, you know? And um, she hated my guts, and we got in a huge, you know, confrontation, and we had gone crystal mining, like, in Arkansas where my dad lived. I made an amends to him on that trip because I had prepared enough to get to the eighth and ninth step and do that. And um, he... Um, Anyways, I got back and I asked that lady to be my sponsor. And I, I went to any lengths, you know, for my sobriety. And my dad, when I was three years sober, called me. And my dad's a good old boy. And he was never going to get sober. He would talk about, we, he lived in Solana Beach above this club, and he would go down there yelling at them, I'll buy you an effing drink, you know, if you shut the F up, because people were down there drinking coffee, doing what we do, right? Like the joy, the laughter. And <laughs> he didn't like that. <laughs> so anyways, he ended up, he ended up calling me, and it, Jerry Garcia had just died, which I went to a lot of shows sober on the West Coast, and with a sober crew, and they had meetings in between sets, and that was something, because I was young, I still wanted to do things that I loved to do, but I just had to find a way to do them in a sober way that worked for me, you know, and um, he, when he called me, and he said that he wasn't drinking anymore. I was like, yeah, you know, whatever. I thought on his own and it wasn't going to last, you know, same old, same old. And he said, I've been going to meetings. And I was like, oh, what? And anyways, he was sober like three months or something like that. And that's the day that my faith in a higher power never has faltered. Because if that man could get sober, I knew that anybody could get sober, that there was a God, you know? And my dad, um, you know, to this day, he comes out here and he stays with me and he's really proud of me, even though he doesn't really know how to say things like that. But he does it in the best way that he knows how, which is usually picking on you, sarcastically saying stuff. And, um, and he's a way better grandfather than he was father. And that's the gift Alcoholics Anonymous has given me by me forgiving him. And that was a journey. I don't have enough time to share all the good sober shit, but... It was a journey to forgive him. Tons of inventories, tons of praying. They say pray for someone for two weeks. I prayed for that man for years before I really forgave him and meant what I was praying for. And, um, you know, like I say, he stays at my house now, and my sons love him. They know he's crazy as can be because he doesn't go to meetings anymore, and he's pretty dry. And he's raised two more kids, mostly in his sobriety, and I have a little sister that's a heroin addict who's 24 and has two little kids that my dad now is raising. This is the funniest stuff. The stuff I used to pray that would happen to him is happening to him. <laughs> And I actually have a lot of compassion for him, and I feel for him, because I, I started to see him as a wounded little boy, and that's the only way that he behaved like that. And, um, and I love him, and I forgive him so much, but I also have to protect myself. I go to a lot of extra meetings when he's coming into town, and I call my sponsor a lot extra. She knows. <laughs> and um, anyways, 
I met my husband at PB Young People's, and um, I had just gotten back from an ikipa in Hawaii that I went to by myself when I had three years sober. It was like a treat that I gave myself, and it was scary like to go do that all alone, but I knew once I got there that my people would be there, and I had a great time, and I owned a business at that time. In my 20s, I opened up a bead store in Hillcrest, and I... Um, I did not want to come home. I'm so undisciplined. So it's like I would have lived in Hawaii with all these guys on the North Shore and a couple girls too. But instead, I had that business, which was like a baby to me, and I came back to it, and I it made me grow up so much. And right when I sold that business, my husband and I were dating by then, and we went down to Mexico for a surf trip, and I was like, something just doesn't feel right. And I got back, and I was pregnant. And... Um, And I felt so grateful for this timing that my higher power had, you know. And my husband and I really stepped up. We got married and because we loved each other. I had stayed out of that relationship for a year and got back to dating and then stayed out of a relationship for a little longer because there I still was in those relationships. And I had a lot of work to do to learn how to love myself. And I did that work. And so because of that, I've now been married 21 years, which is a freaking miracle for someone like me that's a runner and a hider and I don't need you. And, and I do need him, you know. And five years ago, after long-term sobriety, he picked up a drink again, first pills and then a drink after a surgery. And I didn't know about it, and he was lying to me. All the stuff that I heard older people sharing about with their family, like, happened to me in my life and my family. And, um, and I stayed sober. And I, I don't know how I stayed sober through that, except for that no matter what, I've never missed meetings for more than two weeks in these 26 years. God, it has always come first for me. Even in that bead store, I would have people in there, and I'd be reading the book with them. And I'd close the door, and we'd be reading the book. And actually, I just saw someone at my beach meeting who... Um, her daughter died of this disease, and at that time we were the same age, and she would hang out in that bead store with me, and I was 12-stepping her, and she didn't make it. You know, She had a child, too, and she was in and out for years, and she took her life. And um, that's what happens. Those of us that have been here for a while, we get to watch a lot of people not make it. And um, I'm just grateful that I'm not one of those people because I'm defiant and hard-headed and stubborn and I know better and I don't need you. But for some reason, I've just said I need you over and over again. And I reach out and I ask for help and humble myself. And I get to stay sober one day at a time. And those babies made me do more work than I ever would have done without them because I did not want to give them the same story that I had. I did not want them to know that alcoholic pain and loneliness and they don't know it they have lots of self-esteem they talk to me even my 16 year old like likes to hang out with me and tells me how much he loves me and talks about his feelings with me and my son that's up at college he was crying when he had to leave to go back to school after the holiday break because and he's cool he's on the surf team like he's a cool dude you know but he loves us, and, uh, and we've been through a lot as a family because all of the little bubble that I was able to protect, because I thought like if I was just good enough that I could protect them from maybe being alcoholics, and um, then when my husband drank, I feel like 
their little bubble burst, you know, and now they have a different story, and I have a different story, and I really hated him for that. And um, now I'm starting to realize how much that story makes me of more service to others. Every effed up thing that's happened in my sobriety has made, because I've stayed sober and walked through it and worked the steps and grow and change, makes me more effective and makes me be able to help another alcoholic all the more. And... um, So it's like all this crap is starting to already be a gift to me. And this year has been a really tough year. My mom got sick. Oh, I'm out of time. Well, anyways, that mother that I used to abuse, I'm able to be there for her. And I bought her a house this year close to us, and I'm helping to take care of her towards the end of her life. And um, these are all the gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous. So like I say, there's just not enough that I could do to repay AA for all that I've been given. I'm so grateful. And if it means that I had to suit up and show up through all of my fear and my ego telling me every reason why I shouldn't be up here and do it, I do it anyways. And there was a lady that used to share, bring the body, the mind will follow. And that's what I've learned to do here. I just bring the body and my mind catches up. Instead of my best thinking is think the best solution and then maybe you'll end up doing it and it just doesn't work like that so thank you guys so much for having me thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed the podcast sobercast is ad free and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way so if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month visit sobercast.com and look for the donate links thank you very much 